Okay. For those not in the know, what does a cinematographer or director of photography do? Cinematographer is responsible for the visualization of director's requirements. Basically, lighting and to a certain degree, camera movement and framing of the film. What you see is result of cooperation of many people. It's a cooperative endeavor, and the biggest input into what you see and hear, in my view, comes always from the director, but uh, the whole bunch of people under director's guidance that make it work for what it is. And that is the production designer, the art director, the costume designer, uh, makeup people, hair people, and cinematographers um, right up on top of that. All right. We're showing a man on a swing, and it's such an unusual story, part police procedural, then a psychic appearing. It takes on a supernatural element, and it's based on a true story. What was your attraction to the film? Um, first of all, I like the director, Frank Perry, I always look for some sort of uh, offbeat filmmakers to work with, and he was not the mainstream director. I like the producer, Stanley Jaffe, very reputable, experienced fellow, and uh, I like the script. So those three things attracted me to it, and then, of course, the cast didn't hurt either. Uh, I knew Cliff Robertson well. I worked with him before, and I certainly like uh, what, Joe Gray. Joe Gray, right? And um, I thought it was a good combination, and uh, that's what attracted me to it. Just to, I'm a Frank Perry fan myself. I've always enjoyed his films. And could you just talk about the director a little bit? What was he like, and how did he work? Basically, when you throw out all the routines of working on the film, the, um, the work, for me at least, divides into spirited work and not spirited work. And Frank was one of those spirited fellows. He was um, an urban filmmaker uh, who sort of uh, was attracted to offbeat stories. And uh, I... The first film of his I saw was long before I came to the United States. It was called David and Lisa. 
and uh, I was terribly impressed by the film. So I jumped at the opportunity to work with him. As I said, Man on the Swing is based on a true story. I'm curious, was there a technical advisor on the film who actually worked that particular murder case? Not on the set, not with us. Perhaps a technical advisor worked on a screenplay while it was being developed prior to us filming it, but I wouldn't know who that was. Okay. Do you recall at the time if there was any reaction, and I'm not talking about like the critics, but from the actual participants who the movie was based on? Because the movie has kind of an ambiguous ending. Well, for quite frankly, for my liking, this ending is too ambiguous for my taste as well. I wish it had sort of tipped its allegiance one way or another, but it never did. In fact, I remember sitting behind the camera staging one of those last scenes, and I moved the camera to the left, moved the camera to the right, and I asked Frank what does he think would be the better way to go, meaning what I was really asking without stepping forward with the question was, who is the guilty here? And I never got an answer. And I think the viewers today looking at, I haven't seen the film in many years, mind you, but I don't think viewers have a clear idea which side the filmmakers were on either. In doing research on you, I've read that you attended the Polish Film Academy. Could you tell us what that was like? Uh, The greatest experience of my education. I started my educational, higher educational process by studying architecture first. Then I discovered that I'm interested in photography and film. I took a leave of absence from architecture after a couple of years. And um, when I got into the film academy, I stuck with it for five years and I got my master's degree there and uh, that became my life. Great five years, uh, terrific people, not only, it was a small intimate school. When I started the first year, there were 12 of us in the class. After the first year, that was whittled down to six. So the relationships with our professors, instructors, were extremely intimate, and all the people teaching us were working professionals. So many a time, as a student, I had to get on a train and go to some location to visit my professor in order to be guided through some short film project. It was highly beneficial. First of all, I was able to be on the sets of professionally made films. I gained that experience waiting to see my professor. Uh, Then after a day of shooting, very often the professor, not specifically, either one of the professors would invite me to the screening room to see the dailies of the previous day's work. So I was privy to seeing what they were after and privy to the conversation that took place between the cinematographer and the director and the producer. Five years of that prepared me quite well for doing what I have done since then. 
was uh, your professor the was that Andrzej Vita? Andrzej Vida was not. Um, I know him well. He was not my professor, but he subsequently taught at the, at the school. Yes. Okay. You were the assistant director on the lamp, which was directed by Roman Polanski, and I was watching it again. And for a student film, I thought it was a quite elaborate and sophisticated production. Did the students have a lot of freedom to do what they wanted to do? We indeed did. If you could present your case as a student and get your project approved, you got it. We're really a bunch of spoiled brats, if you will, because once you got approved, you could uh, ask for a lot and get it done. It was all government sponsored. Nobody question much um, if it costs uh, a few pennies more or a few pennies less. We shot it all in 35 millimeter. We could build a set on the stage and get a professional crew of electrician grips and technicians to work on it. It was uh, pretty good. It's an intriguing film. Uh, what was the collaboration like um, with Mr. Perlansky and yourself? What were your responsibilities? I was a student, so um, I... And Polanski was a friend. We grew up in the same town, and we knew each other as boys. In fact, I had lunch with him last week in Paris. Uh, so it was not working with a stranger, but working with a friend. Very gifted, talented uh, fellow, and he certainly proved himself to be so. But it was a very friendly setup. Okay. Also, um, I've read that Roman Polanski also helped you get your first major uh, d director photography um, job, which was Midnight Cowboy. Uh, he did. I was. Uh, it was uh, for a year and a half after I arrived to New York, and I was working in documentaries and television commercials. And John Schlesinger heard of me or saw some of my work and contacted me, and then they decided to checked me out, and he contacted Polanski, and uh, Polanski gave him a good recommendation, so I thank him for that. Midnight Cowboy is an iconic motion picture. I was listening to Jerome Hillman's audio commentary, and um, he stated that director John Schlesinger would invite ideas, and I was just wondering, could you talk about any ideas that you had that made it to the final cut? We did enjoy a good collaboration with Schlesinger, and he was indeed very inclusive of uh, people working around him. And I was lucky to find myself on a good project with this terrific director who was willing to open his mind and accept some of ideas. I would not like to start giving examples because if it, it, it always sounds like one is bragging and I don't feel like doing it. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean. It's just impossible to um, disengage it from sort of I did this, I did that. I collaborated and he welcomed the collaboration. And, uh, I'm delighted and thankful for that. After a Midnight Cowboy, I was noticing that most of your films as a cinematographer have been uh, character studies. I'm just, what's the attraction there? I grew up in the cities, and uh, I know the urban life 
better than I know country life. Having said that, I would love to do a Western in Montana. But um, I was always attracted to intimate urban stories that dealt with real people in the environment I could easily relate to, something that I knew. And I fell in love with New York from the day I put my foot on the sidewalk here, and I made it my home. And I sort of um, like exploring the fabric of the city life and the characters that live in them. So the characters that you refer to came from the environment in which they lived in, and uh, that always was something I was attracted to. You've worked with a lot of first-time directors, Jerry Schatzberg and Taylor Hackford and Boaz Yankin and Marshall Brickman. What are the risks and rewards of working with the first-time director? It varies tremendously. It's rewarding. I, as, a, as, as a rule, probably, I like working with writer-directors, and several of those that you mentioned were. If you work with a first and director you have a double resp- i feel that i have a double responsibility on my shoulders not to allow for mistakes to happen because i should know better <laughs> meaning uh, how the scene is going to cut together what goes with what as opposed to not working is part of visual aspect of this part of my responsibility so I, I sort of enjoyed always going through this process however there comes a moment halfway through the film you work together for a couple of months you have four weeks to go and the first time director feels that he's no longer first time director and he wants to take on the responsibility which you carried on for eight weeks. And cinematographer has to be very sensitive to that and careful to allow that wish to be fulfilled and relinquished some of his previous input judiciously, slowly. I don't know how to describe it, but, but it's an adjustment process. As opposed to working with an all the timer director established and experienced and all of that, that you walk into a completely different set of mechanics of work. You get out of the car at 7 o'clock in the morning and you walk on this set and you have to function and you have to have a clear idea what is the best way to accomplish the day's work. You worked with Paul Newman twice, not as an actor, but director for the effect of gamma rays on the man in the moon marigolds and a television production of The Shadow Box. Yes. Since Mr. Newman was an actor, was he more concerned with the performance and just let you handle the visuals? or Pretty much so, although uh, he did have some ideas, but he was... Visual end of it was not his forte. He never. He was an extremely honest man and very admirable fellow to work with. He never pretended to know something if he didn't, and he was uh, very open about the fact that visual end of it is not something that he has much input to do. So he would pretty much um, rely on me in many areas of that and of filmmaking. 
rather long question, but bear with me. In 1978, you were a cinematographer on this tough little TV movie called The Other Side of Hell. I think when I saw it, it was called The Next Howling Wind, directed by Jan Kadar. Yes. It takes place in a mental institution. And just two years before, Mishloff's foreman directed One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And both of those two directors were from what they'd call the Czechoslovakian New Wave. And both were dealing with mental institutions. Did, did Kadar ever discuss his interest in the material? It was not a project that Jan Kadar developed. It was handed to him by the network and the producer, whose name was James Aubrey, uh, a very powerful producer who at one point was the president of MGM Film Studio. Jan Kadar was uh, an unusual film director. I was always startled every single day. Usually film directors, uh, with his experience, direct the scene for the angle from which the camera is observing it. Jan Kadar would direct the world 360 degrees around. (laughs) I've never seen anything like it. So, So as a cinematographer, clearly... Uh, on one end, you have uh, cameras facing one way, and there is void there, usually actors in that void. And behind you, there are trucks and lights and equipment and all of that. When the director starts directing 360 degrees around, and you have no place to hide your equipment or 40, 50 men crew, <laughs> you find yourself sort of startled by it. But slowly, by working with him, you manage to sort of whittle it into segments. So you move your equipment and people around to what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was doing. It was not uh, an amateur time, uh, but an unusual style of working. You also worked with Anishka Holland in uh, To Kill a Priest, and since this was based on a true story of the murder of a Polish solidary chaplain, um, was this sort of like a passion project for you, Miss Holland, and yourself? To a certain degree, it was. It, we did that project in France, pretending they were shooting in Poland. It was a couple of years before the fall of communism. And at the time, I felt that um, I owe something to the country in which I grew up and studied. And if I could participate in some way, small as it is, to help tell the story that was tragic and needed to be told was a key attraction for me. I have a lot of friends who love the movie Fresh, and they wouldn't forgive me if I didn't ask, but how did you and Boaz Yankin team up? I was in Los Angeles. I got a call from the agent, and uh, he asked me if I would read the screenplay. I read it, and I loved the screenplay. He said, well, uh, can I set up the meeting with you and the director? I said, sure. So a few days later, I drove to some place in Culver City, and I was sure that I am going to meet a African-American director because that's the script read um, like a very authentic uh, piece of work similar to, I don't know, Spike Lee or somebody. 
the young fellow with beads, uh, terribly young, came to um, uh, the reception area where I was supposed to show up. And I thought it was an assistant going to take me to this black director. So I said, how do you do? And he says, okay, please follow me. So we uh, went to the room and he sat down and I said, where is the Boaz Yakin? He said, I am Boaz Yakin. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how it started. <laughs> it was strange indeed. <laughs> the credits on Smoke say a film by Wayne Wang and Paul Oster. Which one did you deal with the most? Both of them. It was a collaboration between those two, and it was more of a collaboration at the beginning of the film than uh, from the middle on, because uh, one of the actors didn't like Paul Oster's presence on the set, so um, they had to sort of um, limit it somehow. But from the beginning, when I read the screenplay, and I met with Wayne Wang, and I liked him very much, but I thought that the screenplay was a very strong literary piece of work. So my approach to the film, let me backtrack a little bit. It's very easy for a cinematographer to, I think too easy, to develop a style and try to do every film in sort of signature way of doing it. I have a different approach to it I always have. I think every film project, every story ought to be treated differently and cinematographer ought to find a different way to show the visual presentation depending on the screenplay of of the story. So going back to Smoke, I thought it was such a literary piece of work and no gimmicks were needed, no sort of cutesy visual approach was needed to tell the story. One just simply had to tell it in with as fewer cuts as possible, sort of like, I don't know, Faulkner's language of long sentences that come to the fruition without aid of... Um, either cutting or close-ups or uh, jarring camera moves. So I suggested that approach to Wayne Wang, and he agreed, and we proceeded along the way, and I'm glad we did. It is not a showy, from the cinematographer's point of view, piece of work, but I think it serves the story very well. That it does. Uh you filmed the Augie Wren's Christmas story, that final part in black and white. I was just curious, why why did you choose black and white at the end to choose, shoot that little segment? We thought it would make it an ultra-real to finally bring the story into its essence without color as distracting element, if you will. Okay. By the way, I, I tried it in other films. Uh, I wish we could have done Panning in Needle Park in black and white. They wouldn't let us. So I tried very hard for three months of shooting to make 
the color film look as black as black and white as I could. <laughs> <laughs> well, you succeeded. <laughs> you know, you, you like photographed um, really some great performances: John Voight, Dustin Hoffman, Midnight Cowboy, Morgan Freeman, Street Smart, and. Faye Dunaway, Puzzle of a Downfall Child, and Al Pacino, Kitty Wynn, and um, Panic in Needle Park. And I was just curious, um, was there ever a time while you were filming it, that the performances, because when I see them, I, those performances are like, you know, just astonishing. Has there ever been a time like you're on the set and it's just, wow, you're like, what a performance? Many a time, and it, it, um, it sort of makes you want to get up at 5 o'clock the next morning uh, without pain. As I mentioned to you before, if the work is spirited, it's not spirited by one person. Could it be an actor or a director or a cinematographer? It's contagious. If the work is spirited, it sort of uh, creates its own atmosphere, and I think it makes it better. This is just, I was just wanting your opinion on this. Today, everything is going to digital filmmaking. And just what's your opinion of digital? You know, um, I think digital is the way of the future. I'm not convinced that uh, it is better. I'm not convinced that it's worse. I, I think digital is going to improve, and we're all going to get used to it. And it really doesn't matter. If somebody... Good writers wrote wrote with ink and pen, and then they typed on the typewriter, and now they use computers, and good writing is good writing. And I think the same is true about filmmaking. If somebody has a story to tell, and if cinematographer has an idea how to visualize it, he will find the way to use digital technology to do it justice. And uh, if at the moment, especially for people of my generation, becomes a little harder than it would be on film, so we have to work a little harder, that's all. But we need to embrace it. Okay, excellent. Final question. Of all the movies, you, this is kind of an unfair question, of all the movies you've worked on, which do you think represents the best that you've done? If you had to pick one, say like I was showing a film festival, and what film would you like me to show that you photographed? Well, I would take five-minute snippets of, from about half a dozen films. Uh, having, <laughs> having, having said that, um, I was asked to select a film to show next month at the Cinematography Festival in Poland, actually, this camera image, and I chose Panic in Needle Park. Oh, excellent. Well, that's excellent choice. Um, Thanks. Mr. Holander, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It's just a thrill to talk to you, photograph so many of my favorite movies and stuff. Thank you. I am delighted that we managed to have this chat, and I must tell you, I have very fond memories of your city. Oh, well, great. Thank you, sir. Take <laughs> thank care. you. Bye. Bye-bye. Mr. Holander for granting us an interview. Please come to the Nashville Public Library on Saturday, January 12, 2013 at 2 p.m. to see Man on the Swing. The Public Library is located on 615 Church Street, and the movie will be shown in our main auditorium on our big screen. Man on the 
Shadows of their 